Welcome to the Spinning Wheels podcast, powered by Greenlight Sports and Entertainment, with your hosts, Guy Smith and Paul Woodford. Welcome to Spinning Wheels. Today marks our 16th episode, and from racing to rallying, from karting to engineering, and even the corridors of power in motorsport, you thought you'd heard it all. Well, you haven't, and you'll see why when we intro our next guest. Firstly, though, Guy, when we first started this, we were mid-lockdown in the UK. It was all looking pretty bleak, and frankly, we were both grateful for something motorsport-related to do. Today, by contrast, you've had a busy day. You've been prepping for Le Mans at Ginetta in the morning, and then you and I were at Cadwell Park while you were testing engines for your dad this afternoon. It could have been worse by this point, couldn't it? Yeah, it could, actually. When we sat, sat down in lockdown, we didn't even know when or if motorsport was going to happen this year. So the fact that uh, you know, it's very much back in action um, is it, fantastic news. And of course, we've got Le Mans 24 hours coming up um, at the end of September. Fingers no fans, crossed, though. No fans. But fingers crossed it's going to happen, because obviously the way you know, COVID cases are going in France right now, it's going through the roof. But yeah, um, yeah no fans. So it'll be, it'll, be strange, uh, it'll be a strange one for sure. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to going back there. It's been 10 years, actually, since I've been back there. And I actually have to go back and do my rookie test in the simulator um, in a couple of weeks' time. So going back as a rookie uh, will be interesting. But, uh, but yeah, it's nice to be back talking, talking about racing and sitting in racing cars again. Yeah, excellent. Now, today on Spinning Wheels, it's Stigs, Spies and Stunt Driving as we welcome a racing driver whose career has taken him behind the wheel of some very famous cars, although at the time you wouldn't have known it. He's double for James Bond, Nicolas Cage, even Moneypenny, I believe. And some say that when the news broke that he was the man behind the infamous white helmet on a certain BBC motoring show, the legend of the Stig was never quite the same again. All we know, I've always wanted to do this, <laughs> is that he's called Ben Collins. Welcome to Spinning Wheels, Ben. Thanks for having me. Nice to, nice to catch up with you, boys. So, yeah. guys, had a busy day. What's been happening in the world of stunt driving? Very little. Um, I was just down in Bristol um, getting some pies and beer actually earlier. Um, that's been the highlight of my day, if not week. So can you still fit in the stick suit then? All these pies no. and beers in lockdown? No. I find it's, it's kind of embarrassing because um, I've still got the kit because this is all my, my stuff. You know, got, I mean, when I first started the stick job a um, long, lot years ago now, 2000, 2002, um, they kind of supplied the suit and it was, I, th I think it was... Um, I can't even remember the name of the brand. No, it wasn't Stan 21. It was some, you know, really small, small name. It was a British supplier. Yeah. And the suit was badly fitting and it looked like a tea bag, in my opinion. And there was quite a basic sort of Simpson helmet. So I did sort of push for an upgrade. So I got a, a you know, and I, I was with Alpine Stars. I can't remember who you were with. Alpine Stars make great suits. They fit really well. They had a good looking, got a good looking helmet from Simpson, got this big diamondback helmet. And um, so anyway, I did, I cut the deal got it approved with the BBC. So it's my stuff and it's made to measure. So I have got it. And it, I did slip it on actually to do, um, to do a cover photo for something. So I was sort of living in the past a bit. <laughs> and I thought, I'll just suck in just to, uh, just to really, you know, get this, get this zip through. And it, it was really, it was humiliating when it got stuck halfway, but I have you been- You could have put the tea bag back on, surely. Yeah, I didn't put the tea bag on. Let's not talk, let's not bring that up. It's a family program. Okay. So there's no tea if you're bag. watching this on YouTube, though, if you look just behind Ben's right shoulder, uh, left is looking at the screen. That yeah. is the actual two helmets. Yeah. 
yeah, they were. That's the ones. They still fit. Um, fortunately, you know, <laughs> it's funny that it's become such a legend, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, Guy's actually gone up. Guy started wearing a size small Arai, and he's had to now. He's now actually a triple XL. <laughs> he's just had to try to keep up with his ego. It's been really difficult. Oh. I don't have an ego, Ben Collins. No, I know you don't. I know. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but no, no, yeah. Well, we'll come to the stick stuff. But actually, you know, this, this podcast is all about motorsport. And um, I suppose my 13-year-old, who loves your stunt driving DVD and knows you as the stick, would, would probably be quite surprised that actually you're a racing driver by trade and the stick stuff came along later. So we will come to that. But where did it start? Um, my driving sort of started on the farm. Um, so we lived in the middle of Devon um, and uh, we had a quad bike, which was supposed to be used for agricultural purposes. Um, and so I regularly sort of nicked the keys. My mum took to hiding the keys. I found them. So she took to emptying the petrol. So, you know, all that it was just all the game. But um, that's pretty much where I learned car control. And um, I was a bit obsessive and I used to time myself around this route and sort of learn different lines and things like that. So when Guy was doing world championship karting, sort of professional stuff, <laughs> I was chasing sort of ducks around a field and, um, you know, pretty basic by comparison. Um, but I really didn't have much interest in, in motorsport. I, I was vaguely aware of it on the TV. Dad used to watch it on a Sunday afternoon and fall asleep. And sort of the cars looked kind of interesting, but it wasn't something that I was that into. Um, but luckily for me, is a huge sort of fortune, um, fortunate moment. He, my birthday was 18 he bought me a, a tryout in a single seat race car at silverstone and then that was that and there was um no getting back i was completely addicted and it was just an amazing just even just sitting in the car you're so low to the ground all the dials and everything um and then tearing around silverstone getting instruction from um oh, what's his name steve deeks and um neil cunningham and these guys who were up there these you know real as i would later learn you know fantastic drivers um getting tuition from them and then blitzing around Silverstone. And I you know, took to it pretty well. And that was that. So the, the racing bug was, was in and then couldn't stop watching it, couldn't stop reading about it and trying to get back in a car. So, so no karting there, just, just all, all straight into single seaters and... Yeah, hilarious. I mean, I, didn't, I, did, I literally got my license. So I, had a, I think I did a couple of laps in a single seater and then on a different day, went back, had some tuition, got my license and then rocked up for a Formula First race and was off and um, what do you think to the formula first cars well for me it was like a ferrari it was the best thing ever and and then my mates came to one of the races and they're like what is that they were ugly weren't they we had them at cadwell park as training cars part of the racing school before my obviously and they were ugly. i thought it was like a mig you know it was amazing it was for me it was the best thing in the world it was like the you know your passport to another world isn't it it's just they're i know they're basic you look back now and you laugh yeah. But at the time, great. they were bloody quick. I mean, you know, I can remember when it was all a big, th like we all trooped off to Norfolk, to Snetterton. Yeah. First corner. And it was a proper sphincter twitch if you could do it flat in a Formula <laughs> First car. Yeah. And then, you know, and it's good, it is good training because so a few years later, you're in a Formula 3 car going a lot quicker. Yeah. It's the same feeling in the pants and yeah. you, it, it's iffy. Is it flat or not? It's the same. So, you know, it was an amazing experience learning a lot of that. Um, Were they Escort XR3s stuck in there? XR2. It was a 1.1 engine. I think it might have been XR2, Paul. Because I, I did the Brands Hatch Winter Series before I started. That was my first thing in, in, in the, the Formula First. And like, like Ben said, I mean, like, you know, you think you're a racing driver because you're, you're in a racing car. But like, actually, when you look at them, they are the most bizarre looking thing ever. 
But if you've never seen one, Google them. They're like sort of Formula Ford, sort of someone sat on in yeah. weird places. So that actually got you really cool. So would yeah. you say that's where you kind of learned your racecraft then? Because I mean, you know, the racecraft side of stuff's quite, you know, it's, it, you know, when you've got kids like myself coming from karting and having raced for years, um, you almost just take that for granted. And, and you know, I'm actually quite shocked because I thought you did some karting. So the fact that you'd gone into pretty much straight into car racing with no, no real kind of background, yeah. pretty impressive considering, you know, how little you'd well, done before you'd moved up. The results weren't impressive. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the funny part was I, I qualified up at the front with absolutely no idea what I was doing. So um, I, could, I could pedal the car quickly. So that was some sort of latent whatever. So, you know, naturally could operate the machine, but racing. So I was up on the grids with, there were guys who'd done well. Yeah, they were world karting people. They were also national champions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and the worst thing that could have happened was the, I did, I did the main championship and led the first race, which was, which was awful because then I thought, oh, well, I read Senna's book. So you're supposed to win all of them. And, <laughs> Expected, so I, I got taken out in that one. I got T-boned by Baldacci, was his name. He did it. He lunged me at the second corner, and, and just I, I turned in anywhere. I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not conceding anything. So you learn from that. Okay, you can't win every corner. So if you leave the door open, someone's going to go up your inside and, and turn you around. So I got taken out in that one, and then by by half season, I'd written off three chassis. Well, I rolled one at Lyndon Hill. Um, I turned one into a, like a, I mean, cigarette packet, no wheels, no engine at um, Brands GP, trying to go around the outside of two people at the, oh, was that really quick one at the back? The, um, down there, where Johnny Herbert had his crash. Yes, I, I should know this. I was only there last week, two weeks ago. Oh, I, know what you mean. No, I can't remember the name. Anyway, Hawthorne. the big, Hawthorne. That, Hawthorne. The big one. Hawthorns. Hawthorns, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And it was, that was quite a funny crash because I, I lined up on the outside, thought there's space. I'll do it. And of course they all inched across and just put me onto the, they basically just put me off the track. And it was obviously unused gravel because the, at the end of it, there was no wheel. The wheels went in all directions. The engine came off. I was in a bathtub and covered with a green algae, the sort of ancient sort of prehistoric slime. Um, and that my black suit was green. So that was the second one. And the third one, I can't, well, anyway, but I got, so the only real prize I had at that point was the, the bent wishbone award for the biggest crash. Um, and they said, if you, if you crash one more time, we're not putting you back in the car. So I stopped crashing and um, started finishing, got some podiums and then won a race. But it was um, an interesting learning curve. Yeah. And then, and then did you move up to Vauxhall Junior after that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they were good little cars on slick tyres. Uh, oh, yeah, amazing. They, they, were, they were good fun. And you, you were third working in the championship. That's that. it. Yeah, yeah, joint with um, Justin Wilson. Yeah. It all came down to the wire, that one. It was super close. So I actually led the championship up until the 13th round, I think it was. Lucky number 13, qualified 13th and crashed, which was, oh. I, got, I had a, a tangle. Um, and then, um, yeah, it went right down to the last race. And what was it? I won the last race. And there was a crash and they went back a couple of laps. It was one of those really, really close things on points. Yeah. yeah. So Malkin, who, Mal, Darren Malkin. Oh, Malkin. <laughs> who was wild. He caused the crash. And then, um, so he got some. Um, That's uh, Colin, Malkin, Colin Malkin's son. Paul. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And um, it went back. And so he, he finished second in the championship and uh, Mark Hines won it. And Mark was a very, very worthy winner. Um, he was the sort of the professor he of was, the championship. Yeah. And he, he just quietly kept banging in the really good results and was always there. Yeah, because he, he, he kind of won. I think he went and won the Vauxhall Championship. And then he was and then F3. And he was never really spectacular, but he was always really kind of just, just a master at winning championships, wasn't he? He was very good. Yeah, he, 
he took longer to learn a car. I can remember that because we were teammates at Martin Donnelly. So we went up to do the winter. I did the winter series of Paul Stewart racing. And then we ended up doing the main season at Donnelly's. Yeah. There's a name from today, Guy. Yeah, yeah. Today, yeah, yeah. Where everything fell off the cars, basically. <laughs> um, wheels, gear sticks, everything. And so that was quite a tough, tough year. But it was interesting because being Mark's teammate there and having battled him for a year in Vauxhall Junior, you got to see what, you know, you got the data and everything. It's quite interesting. But I, I mean, I, have to, I remember going back to watch him in Formula 3 and he was, um, but that year that he won the championship was really incredible. And you raced for Manor, so you know what they're like. But yeah. they had a very small budget by comparison to Stuart Racing. Yeah. There was a lot of argy-bargy in the races and it was Manor's first season at, at, of F3. And they won the championship. I went. I think I went to watch the um, the final at Thruxton, and it was really. I mean, it's super tense. Yeah. And uh, he. I think he really sort of came of age in F three. Yeah. So at this point, Ben, going from someone who thought the cars looked okay on a Sunday afternoon to to racing and going through the the ranks. At this point, were you focusing on a career in motorsport, or were you still just enjoying it? And were you doing anything else at the time? Uh, that was. It was a total obsession. So you know, <clears throat> like Guy and everybody, you know. Once you're in, I was absolutely, for me, I'm going to be a Formula One driver, nothing else matters. And um, nothing, yeah, that was the total focus. Well, I guess uh, no one had heard of the Stig then, had they? So had no, to go there was no Stig. Although I did sort of, I was ahead of the game because I, I, I was racing in a sort of all black overalls, black Simpson helmet. So I obviously, you know, I was, I was ready from an early stage. Um, but yeah, no, it was, a, it was a few years away. So we were, I was racing, 94 was my first full season. Um, doing Formula 3, sort of halfway through 96. I did start doing Class B and, and doing all that. And then... Yeah, 1997, Ben, which, which team did you go to? In Formula <laughs> so, I was doing Class B and watching Guy Smith and Juan Pablo Montoya in Formula 3. And I was, I was doing well at the Class B thing and winning races in my little thing. And these guys were rattling around at Fortec. And it was quite clear, looking at them, that A, they were very good drivers, and B... They had these dynamite Mitsubishi engines. One of them, one of them was. <laughs> Guys. One of them, one of them was in Formula One and one of them wasn't. So, you know. Yeah. Well, you were both very quick. And I looked at it and Pat Wan crashed a lot, but was outrageously fast. And there's a, there's a race of him around Snetterton in the wet, which you have to just, it's like a seminal race. And uh, he, he just defied physics in that and yeah. until he crashed. And then, um, and Guy finished second. And I sort of thought, well, somewhere between the two of those guys, you know, with the, 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 but the engines and the performance was really good. So I went to the same team as they, as they made the restrictor bigger on the engine. And it basically was a totally different package. And they went from having these really, really good engines to total dogs. And that's what we raced with for a year. So we, 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 we should have spoke actually in that year because what happened was, was with, with the Mitsubishi, because everybody had um, basically Mugen Honda and, and apart from Mitsubishi were the, were the only kind of you know, opposite alternative engine. And it was, um, they were sort of pushing the Mitsubishi Charisma at the time, weren't they? Remember, I think my car had Mitsubishi Charisma on the side. And um, the engines were, they were really strong. In fact, the first two races, I, got, I was on pole position for the first two races. And I think I won one, I think maybe Wan won one. Or we, we, yeah. Anyway, the first half of the season, we were really strong. And then they started having some issues with some part supply. So they started turning the engines down because they wanted to protect them. Because if they blew, they didn't have the right parts to, to repair them. So they were cranking the engines further and further down and getting slower and slower and slower. A bit, a bit like my season was a bit like your Formula First season where I was running second, second, third in the championship all the way through. 
And then like the last two or three races, I had like a 16th and 18th, and, a, you know, and I, I dropped, I think I finished sixth in the championship. Um, but I mean, Fortech were, were, were a good team. It was just, I think you said, I think the engine was uh, probably not quite, not quite on par with the Mugen, was it? No. No. Uh, well, and the following year, it was, it was way behind. So they, yeah, they, they opened the horsepower a little bit. So the, the cars got a bit quicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting year. See, I've, I, yeah, that was following you. And then, um, and then I followed you again because I went to America. I was going to say, into Indy Lights, to, to yeah. Johansson. Into Johansson, where you'd left a, a big mark. And, the, and uh, they were, yeah, I mean, Guy had a fantastic season at Indy Lights. Yeah. Good, they were hard so work, man. What's that? Not so good the following year when I was actually racing against you. You when I went to Tasman, and I was it in. It was a funny year that that was a really strange year because oh, yeah. you look at these these championships. I mean, the car didn't change; it was the same chassis and the same engine. Yeah. And you know, you 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 look at a championship, you go, okay, right, what's the performance like? What are the different teams? What are they capable of? And um, it was quite strange because I think there was a bit of a lottery with engines. Not that I'm blaming anything on that, but very odd who came forward and who went backwards in the series. It was yeah. um. Because you switched and you were actually going better with the Johansson car, I think. Well, I had Harvey as my engineer who, who I brought with me and he didn't know any ovals or American racing. And we kind of learned together and we had a really good relationship and I actually really loved it there. But we couldn't really afford to stay there for another year. And, and Tasman came in, they'd won the championship for the previous year and sort of said, well, we can give you like, you know, it's like a fraction of the cost and we can, you know, put money as well. It was too good a deal to do. We couldn't afford not to do it, to be fair. Um, and then obviously you you came into Hanson as, as did Scott Dixon, and um, you know we're, we're both really quick. But did you, did you enjoy racing in the on the ovals in America? I loved it. Yeah, I was quite surprised. Um, and in traditional style, I managed to destroy the car, obviously. <laughs> so um, it was the first race was at um, uh, Homestead. Yeah, I was. It was really annoying because I was being so. I was being very careful. Thinking right, I love I like you know, I like always like fast corners, so this should be good, but just don't don't do what you did in Formula First. So I was thinking, right, it's five years on, but don't be a dick. Take it easy. So I was building my times up slowly. And Homestead, you could it was borderline, you could do the track flat. So you probably remember that. Yeah. But and it was very iffy. And I tuned the car in, had everything right, and got the cars in a good place. The right, now's the time. I pinned it, and um, I think I was I was then joint quickest with um What's his name? Oh, he looked like an actor. Um, anyway, there was two of us up there with, with good times. And I thought, this is cool. This is good. Got this logged. Let's try some drafting. And Mario Dominguez, um, I, was, I, I was towing up behind him and made basically, in hindsight, it took me about... You mean Scary Spice? Scary Spice. We'll yeah. Pull the surprise guy. We're getting there. We're getting there. Get onto that. I know you want to talk about your Union Jack knickers. <laughs> Just, um, and I know you've got them on that shelf somewhere. I know they're there. I thought you ripped them off me. I did. Yeah, I tried. You and all of a sudden, anyone who thought they were listening to a really serious motorsport podcast, remember they were listening to Spinning Wheels. It's very serious. <laughs> So I was, yeah, I was drafting him and uh, just getting, you know, just get used to what it'd be like in the, you know, losing downforce and, um, and did the same thing I used to do in F3. It was like just sneak inside, get a bit of air over the, well, other side, get a bit of air over the wing. That was that. I lost the downforce under the flat floor and round she went, ba-bang, a huge crash. And I remember the boys saying, if the car comes back in two bags, that's not so bad, but if it comes back in three, you're, you're, you've completely toasted it. And it was, you know, it was in a million bits. So... That totally wrote the car off. My legs sort of swelled out. The classic oval crash, you know, like a, jack, like a sledgehammer to your knee. 
yeah. saw stars, literally remember seeing sort of um, cartoon things going around my head. Really? Destroyed, destroyed the horseshoe. It was a proper, it was 180 mile an hour into the wall. It was a big wow. one. Yeah. Or whatever, whatever it was after it scrub speed. So they rebuilt the car and, and it wasn't, just wasn't quite the same. We got the, the wing wrong, but I think like, I finished eighth. Yeah. That was first um, experience. So it took a long time to explain that, but it, it took me weeks to understand what had gone wrong. That black, because you can't see the air. Yeah. Understanding how are you supposed to follow and, and learning that you know you have to stay wide and you have to compensate different ways to feel what the car is doing. It's a totally, totally different running on your own to running behind someone. It used to get a massive draft, didn't you? Because if you're behind like three or four cars, suddenly you find yourself on the rev limiter and you're kind of going, you know, five, six miles an hour quicker, but that, which is great. But of course, like when you come to the corner, you realize you're going so much quicker, aren't you? So, but you know, you're not, you're not, you're not, you say you're not a proper yeah. rebel driver until you've hit the wall. Until you hit the wall, you're, you know, you're not a proper rebel driver. Because, you, you know, you're always thinking, I wonder what it's like. I wonder what it's like. And then when you've done it, you're like, yeah, I've got my badge, yeah. I've got my stripes. I banged that one early. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, I found, cause I, so I did the ASA thing, so ASCAR in, in Europe. Yeah, I loved it. So the experience I'd logged in the States, that was really useful. And I found um, the acoustic in a, in a closed car, you get this, the, re the reverberation of the air. Yeah. Weirdly, there's more tells. I think there's more telltale of what's going on with the air when you're on a, an, in a stock car, I found. And you was that when you were sponsored by Jack Daniels? And you're like a big bottle of whiskey. That, that was Australia. That, that, that oh, was okay. the V8 supercar. So oh. in, in, in Europe, I did the European series with a camouflage car. That's right, yeah. And um, that went really well. Won the championship in that. And um, so racing games, we were talking about Plato earlier. He was, he was in it at the time. But the, yeah, it, it's fascinating because they're big bricks. So the, the aerodynamic draft is, is even much bigger, but equally unstable. But, um, but quite, it's, it's really, I, I, was, I expected it to feel awful on an oval compared, compared to an Indy Lights, like a single seat. Yeah. But in fact, the, um, they're far more acute and sensitive you, you feel the tire working all the time and it, it you forget you're in this huge truck um quite maybe quite interesting because it, maybe because it's a bit heavier so you can feel the tire moving as opposed to less air it's going to be a bit less air and more mechanical i don't know maybe there is a bit more give yeah. i mean obviously the the single seat is much that much more reactive and it's quite quick and it's a, a tiny shimmies and you you really are bricking it whereas you can you can get away with a bit more of a slide um, with one of those stock cars, but I mean, geez, not much more because you because they're sliding at higher speeds. Well, I, I remember the end of that year, so the book end of that year, we were Fontana was the last race. Now, did you crash in Fontana? I know I, I know I crashed in Fontana. I don't know if I crashed with you. Or... No, I finished that one. So I I was Johnny Kane won it, and I was point zero zero one of a second. I was along. We had a drag race to the end. Oh, he, really? He, he got me. Well, all I remember was I crashed and had a really sort of crappy year. I was really peeved off. And the night before, we'd, we'd, for, for, for a charity event, we'd, um, <laughs> they, had, they had myself, uh, Ben, um, Didi Andre, Mario Dominguez, and somebody else. And I can't remember who it was. Um, was it four of us, I think? Casey Mears. That's right. And, and we basically girl. We ended up dressing up as the Spice Girls. Guy sent me a message before this and said, yeah. don't be alarmed. I was alarmed. Were you posh spice, Ben? Yeah. I think you were posh. I was ginger spice. God knows why. And, <laughs> and, and we, ended up, we ended up having to go on stage in front of all the kind of IndyCar, you know, teams and owners and all the rest of it, singing, I don't know, I think it was Wannabe by, you know, the, 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 the Spice Girls. Had they heard of the Spice Girls by then? Not really. I think they were pretty oh, big at the time. I think they were... <laughs> the worst part was there was no auto cue. And oh, in no. fact, there was also very little music. 
So yeah. basically, the four of us went up there dressed like total idiots. The only person that was really pleased about it was Guy. It's like a lifelong ambition. I put a lot of effort into it. I put a lot of He's still talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it was okay that he had the sequin dress, the one, all, all in one. He'd done his hair, but I thought he went too far with the lipstick Did and you? the underpants. Hmm. Which was a terrifying episode. picture that you sent what? me before this guy. You didn't like the crutchless pants? I didn't think that, I just felt no. that was over the top. I mean, I didn't know who was that for? Well, no one else <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. You know, but all I remember was I remember getting out of the car feeling dejected, pissed off, annoyed. Is this after the Spice Girl thing or before? No, no, no. no. That was after our performance. No, okay. after the crash, I just crashed. I remember just walking back to the pits. I thought, today can't get any worse. And with that, <laughs> there's a massive big infield TV screen with me as Ginger Spice. <laughs> so there's me dressed as a woman. I'm thinking, yes, it can. It can get worse. <laughs> it was horrible. You made a good girl, Guy. I do think um, oh. it was you and a you. I know, I know. So, so after Indie Lights then, Ben, what, um, what, so you, you went back to Formula 3, didn't you? I didn't realise you'd gone back to Formula 3 with Carlin. Yeah, yeah I did. And um, Carlin, um, well, they're a lot better known now in motorsport. And, um, but they were just getting into F3 at the time. Yeah. I'd, done a, I'd done a test with them. And their car, they had, you, know, you, you jump in sometimes, a, a car, and you go, blimey, this, this thing feels, it was really well sorted. Yeah. And a lot of it was about, well, okay, you know, which engine do you get? How much support do you get from Mugen? Because yeah. it's not um, always a, you know, that is always a factor in um, how well it'll do. But their car felt really good. And um, they had Takuma in there as well. And off we went. But they were, up, I'm trying to remember who we were racing against. And that was, that was punchy. It was, it was Stuart Racing, docking, the usual sort of crew. And it was a, it was a really strong field. So I had a, yeah, I had a great season with them. Yeah. And, uh, and working and racing with Taku, but um, it was a strange decision actually. But I, I, I was very much hoping to come back with the experience, win the Formula Three Championship, um, and get you know see where that went. But in the end, it was like a, it was quite tough. We had a, had a couple of DNFs through mechanical that didn't help, um, and we we had a good season. I think we learned quite a lot. Poe was on the on the um, the schedule as well, and there are a few tracks where we hadn't quite logged. The, the setup at the start that we you know it was we were fi we were finding out the setup as the weekend went on yeah yeah um, and I only say that and I mean that completely out of love for Carlin because um, they did a fantastic job that season my yeah. engineer was amazing but the the following year I went off and went into sports car racing and um, Taku stayed Taku did Taku win the, yeah Taku won the championship Anti Davidson was his teammate yeah but they had that that one year with us they honed the setups in that year and it went to the next level the they year got after. In a role, didn't they they had a really successful really, period yeah it really did um so, so yeah so i mean I was, it was great to have been a part of that bit um would love to have done I'd, I'd love to have done better in that year than i did but it is what it is but i feel like at this stage if you're watching this on youtube or you're listening to it on the on the podcast there, there would be um a year's countdown to the stig and we're were we two years away at this point getting close yeah that was 2000 yeah, um, and then I got the keys to the ultimate um, machine, which was the the Ascari LMP1. So that was um, 800 horsepower Judd F1 engine in the back, um, prototype carbon fiber tub. It was a, actually an ex-Lola chassis that had the roof cut off. I think it was a Group C car. Wow. More downforce than an F1 machine. No power steering. Sequential box. It was an absolute animal. And first um, Le Mans in that as well. It was the first Le Mans. Yeah, and and really fortunate. Basically, I'd done. At the end of the 2000s, I was, I was starting to try and work my way into other types of racing. 
and I drove this really terrible car called a Matrix. And it was, um, at first I thought it was the livery, but it actually was held together by gaffer tape. And there was lots of gaffer all over the, the wings and everything. It was a real dog. And the first lap at Donington that I did in it, um, I was somewhere at the back and Werner Luckberger was on pole position in this Ferrari, in this Ascari. And I watched this car come down the pit lane and I've never, I'd never seen a more aggressive looking car. The, the, the F1 sound, the, the trumpets, the exhaust, it was just, it was a completely, and on the rev limiter, so you hear everything sort of like a machine gun blasting out the exhaust and seeing the speed of it on the straights. I mean, it, it was sort of 80 miles an hour quicker in a straight line and I, my car was in this, allegedly in the same class. Okay. So um, as it happened, both our cars died on the parade lap. And so we ended up, so he was on pole, his car, for whatever reason, short-circuited. Mine was barely going to make it out of the pits and it just died. So we walked back together, we got chatting. And he mentioned that they were doing, they were doing auditions for drivers to be his teammate. We had a chat and he, you know, he said, you should definitely come and test the car. So I got a test in the car and they, they hired me, which is amazing. And they, they'd been testing lots of different sports car drivers and they were happy with what I did. And so I ended up as, as Werner's teammate, which was incredible. And Werner had actually been very little, no one really had, he hadn't done much in Formula 3. He was pretty good in Formula 3000. He hadn't set the world ablaze, but he, you know, wasn't in a best car, but he was, he was fast. And in that, but in the sports car, he was an absolute beast. He was, he was extremely fit. Everybody who turned up to do the comparative tests with him, he, he had absolutely wiped the floor. And um, I got closest to his level, but of course that's not good enough. I need, you know, you've got to be there. So, um, but that's where it started. It was a very, very physical car. The Indy Lights definitely helped with that because they were, your guy will remember how heavy they were with a huge amount of downforce. So, um, so that was that. So, yeah, two years with them. So, we finished third in the World Sports, Sports Car Championship with that. We won the, won the Tourist Trophy, and it was a you know, really cool year, but first time at Le Mans. And it was the year it rained for, I think, 16 hours out of 24. Yeah. Was that, yeah, 2001 was, was incredibly right, wasn't it? Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Um, and, our, and the Ascari was, was mint. We had, I mean, we must have had great tyres. So, we had. Um, Good years on. They had a fantastic wet. It was way better than the Michelin, I think. And we were able to cut through and, and get back up amongst it. So we were running fourth when the fuel pump went and we had no spare. So that was that. Despite a few efforts of dropped ECUs over the, uh, the barrier at Arnage, I was, I was sort of trying to MacGyver the car to keep it going. It didn't quite happen. Was it Ian Dawson that ran that, Ben? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I was speaking to him last week, actually, on a, on a, on a Zoom call. He's, uh, he's living in the States at the minute. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice guy. Nice guy. Yeah, he's great. And his son's out in Texas, Simon. That's right. That's right. So then at this point, I feel like um, Phil Taylor's question on Twitter comes in because we, we are getting close. And, um, and he said, how did... Because we had to establish that Ben Collins is a racing driver who was also the Stig rather than just going straight with the Stig thing because there's a lot of people that probably thought you were just the Stig, you know, because that's where you started for them. Um, so he said, how did the BBC Top Gear Stig thing come about? So for, for, uh, for them or, for, or both? Well, so Top Gear was airing, I think it was end or mid 2002. So it was my yeah. second year with Ascari. And um, basically we had a, there was a colossal crash at Le Mans. Basically the suspension had unwound itself. Werner lifted off for Indianapolis at 215 miles an hour. The suspension collapsed and he went in, destroyed the car. And I thought that's going to be a showstopper because um, the cars are worth best part of a million pounds. And pretty much after that, um, they, the team closed shop and that was, that was that. 
So I was aware of Top Gear. They, I think um, it'd been on for about six months with the new format. So they'd, they'd always been, the, you know, the old Top Gear of the past, Noel Edmonds, yeah. all those guys. So from memory of, of hearing the sort of the lore of Top Gear, Andy Wilman and Clarkson had sort of been pitching for this new format, which was going to be a studio-based format with an anonymous driver, which then they had Perry McCarthy. He was the stick in yeah. a black suit. And I'd done a day or two um, in that period of time because I'd done some work for the Top Gear magazine. So I ended up in the black suit a couple of times. Um, but yeah, racing seemed to be over for me. So I was then looking for things to do. Did an audition with Top Gear at the end of, or the beginning of 2003 and nothing came of that. So I did a, I got in a, basically I went down to Dunsfold to the test track, met Andy Wilman, this very yeah. disheveled man, desperately needed a belt to sort of lasso him together. <laughs> and he had a Ford Focus and we did, I did some lap times. He, had, he didn't tell me if they were good, bad or ugly. And he said, can you go any quicker? So I thought, that's never a good sign. And I said, I can't actually, that's the best I can do. So, okay. Gave nothing away. And um, about two months later, I got a phone call. Can you be at the track tomorrow? Um, and I went to the track. They gave me the tea bag white suit and a white helmet. <laughs> I was the Stig and that was that. Wow. Um, oh, okay, cool. So I was off and that was 2003. So I had a, had a job. And well, what's fascinating is no one at that point, and you didn't, know how big that would become as, as both a, a legacy and a, and a legend of the Stig. It was just a, a thing at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it looked a lot of fun. And actually, I, I, you know, what do you do? You, you're racing, but very on and off. One minute you, you've got a, a, a season with the team and the next something, the wind changes direction and, and you're high and dry. Or, and even if you've got a full season, it's only 10 weekends or 15 weekends. So what, what are you supposed to do? In the rest of the time, you could do a Lando Norris these days and get on the simulator and, and be a, a complete hero there as well. But um, we didn't have that back in the day. We had Micropros Grand Prix 2. On a, on a sort of black and white laptop and that was it. So um, I was always keen to do more with the time. It seemed like a perfect way to combine and, and, and learn something different. And actually getting involved with the film crews, really it, it was instantly apparent that the allure of it, beyond the fact you got to drive amazing cars all the time, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, this sort of started to get going, but also seeing how they filmed it, how they positioned the cameras, the, the lingo, the way that they, the creative part to it, working with a small team. That was the real beauty. The early days of Top Gear was that it was, it was such a small niche team, including the creative bit. So if you had a mad idea, but it's half decent. So I, I mentioned doing something with a, with a goalie and trying to you know, drift, get a corner kicker like Beckham, kick a ball, slide, you do a power slide and knock it past an international goalie. And they said, that's no, crap idea but three weeks later it resurfaced as car football with it with what about if we had a giant ball could we play football with some nets and some cars and stuff so absolutely so then we did a test with a big ball and car football and car football was one of the most popular skits but that was definitely the, the heyday of um really small team re amazing young creatives um the sort of the uh, what they call the the ad's the assistant directors and ap's coming up with mad stuff and filming it it was really good fun so Ben, when when you were on set, then did you did they all know who you were, or I mean, or I mean, like the, the the guys that filming it and stuff, or do you have to kind of keep secret, or how does it work? I guess everyone just has a confidentiality agreement, or so to begin with. I mean, I had no agreement at all. I just I just pitched up, and about I think it was four weeks after my first job, um, a piece of paper came through saying this is your this is your deal. So okay, cool, that's great. 
And um, the first bit of paper, I think it just said, you will keep your identity secret or something very vague like that. Um, but I'd kind of, I, I picked that up from the fact that they killed Perry McCarthy's character off by throwing his, him off of an aircraft carrier. That, that, um, in the Jaguar, wasn't it? Yeah, in the Jag. Secrecy was important. So um, I just didn't, it was a very simple rule. I just didn't tell anyone. So I went, would go to work. I would rock up, I would put a balaclava on about two miles out of the track, drive in in a car, park in the middle of nowhere, walk in with a bag. And there was, a, there was an old brick outhouse where the Harrier pilots, there was a, Dunsfold was a Harrier test track, test improving. So the pilots used to get changed in there. There's one door in, one door out. So to get, you know, make sure the door was closed, have a quick look, get changed and reappear. So I was never out of character. I was either fully dressed or balaclava boy and then back in my car. And didn't introduce my name to the crew or anything like that. And even up to the, I think it was well into that first year, the presenters didn't know. And um, we started doing live shows. So we were doing these, it was called the MPH show at the beginning at Earl's Court. And Wilman knew, so Andy Wilman hired me and one other guy called Jim Wiseman, he knew, he was um, working with a senior guy with um, the production. And uh, Wilman said, right, just go and, go and hang out in the Winnebago, go over there. Okay, fine. So I was sitting there, Clarkson walked in and it was, gave me the sort of, who the fuck are you? And uh, <laughs> uh, Andy said, I could sit here, hope that's okay. And so, mm. and then that was how he found out. So he must have, he would have gone out and said, who the fuck's this guy? <laughs> and that was me. So um, yeah, it was, it was a fun way to get started. See, it's, it's not such a, we had Top Gear at Cadwell Park last year and um, I had to sign all the safety stuff. So they weren't, obviously you don't talk about who it is, but they weren't so cautious about the identity of the stick. Whereas in your day, it was all in the papers, wasn't it? I remember when it first came out, I mean, everyone was talking about it. Yeah, well, at the beginning, it was, it was very unknown. And there was no internet, so that it hadn't, internet hadn't kicked in yet. There was no camera phones. And so I remember do, they asked me to do an interview in my full stick kit with this Dutch TV crew. And even I knew that wasn't a good idea. And I said, are you sure that you want me to do that? Because people will recognize my voice. And everyone was like, Pfft. because it wasn't shown in, in Holland, the, it's like, it doesn't matter. Except that three years later, that recording came out on YouTube, which didn't even exist in 03, I don't think. Well, maybe it did, but I, I wasn't, no one was aware of it. Yeah. And then it came back and people, oh, that sounds, that voice sounds familiar. So that came back to haunt us, but that was two years away. So for the first two years, I would say we had it utterly under wraps. Then the internet began and then you get things like Wikipedia and we used to fiddle around with the Wikipedia and keep putting Damon Hill in. Mm. So we were constantly, I say we, you know, however we did it, but there were lots of different ways to sort of do that ruse. But eight years, it, did, it was quite a chat. It got harder as it went on. Then we had uh, the Sunday Times broke into my changing room. up at this way. We had a porter cabin by that point. Was that who broke it initially? Um, so the first, well, it was, it, there was a couple of little leaks. I can't really remember, but they were never really substantive. substantive. Sorry, um, I interrupted the Sunday Times story in that case. But we did well, yeah, they did. So they broke in. That was in, um, I say broke in, but you know, it's pretty playful yeah. stuff but they went through my kit and I'd already thought I had to not bring my wallet in to work. So that was locked in the car and they did a, a big article. The stick has size 10 feet. So that was all they could do. So that, <laughs> that. Um, but the, the word was starting to go, it was things like insurance documents and stuff you have to put your name to that though. That was collateral. And yeah, 
start people in the crew started to know so you know you end up your mobile phone number starts get given out to more people and then i'd appeared a couple of times as myself but that was more to try and throw smoke over things you were in the um, 24 hour 2cv race weren't you i did do that that was but that was oh that was 2002 so very early on but yes there you know you're right oh three that was that was quite early so um but it, but to do that you have to give your real racing license over so towards the end I made a fake BBC ID that was Richard Jameson um, for checking into hotels and stuff. So I, I would get hotels booked in a fake name rather than be Ben. And I, by name, take, you know, make sure I was never put on a call sheet and things like that. So the first little slip up was, I think, um, 07, because my name was on a health and safety report from um, Hammond had a terrible crash in the jet car. Yeah. And I got flagged as a, as a driving consultant, which wasn't helpful. So that kind of got a few things going. And then um, actually the BBC's Radio Times did a big feature. They did a front page cover. They got someone dressed up in the suit and they just said, who is the Stig the nation needs to know with a reveal inside? And it was me and this 70 year old man. And it, it was kind of, the, and the newspapers saw that and thought, well, we kind of know who it is. And then uh, it started running in the, in the mainstream press. And that was the, that was the sort of the beginning of the end really. How cool that that was front page news, though. I'd oh, yes, yeah, brilliant. To have been a part of that era when it grew to be such a big thing. It was really fun. It was, I, I, you know, it was really fun. Plus, you're with a gang, everybody who's in on the secret. And, um, yeah, and it's not like you're risking your life. It's um, you're not a real spy. It's just um, playing cat and mouse with the press. Um, but in the end, it, it, it was always going to come out. And I remember that first time, it was actually a builder said, oh, sign this, giving me this the Stig thing. And I said, oh, that's not me. He said, yeah, it is. Look, your, your picture's here. My heart did sink because I thought that's, that's the beginning of the end. And, but in a weird way, it was also a bit of a relief because it's you sort of keeping it in and telling a lot of lies over the years about what you're up to. Um, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. It was, a, it was an awesome, awesome journey. And who would have thought? So when it, when it did end and, and the Stig thing came out and your book came out and there was a lot of story about the, the legal case about you, know, you saying in the book that you were Stig and talking about it and everything, there was a lot of sarcasm among the presenters. Hammond particularly used to make a lot of quips about it. And there was one point where he said, oh, you should write a book about that. And um, there, were, there were quite a few moments where you thought, oh, this is actually quite you know, they're quite hurt by the fact he's come out and done all his book and stuff. Was that real? No, they weren't. Um, there's a good bit of, there's a good bit of panto. I mean, I was never going to get off very lightly, I suppose, because I just, so I, I chose to leave, but um, yeah. it, it, I didn't really want to go, it, but it, it seemed to me untenable. And without boring you with the sort of, this, the background stuff that was going on, I became aware the writing was kind of on the wall and either I was going to go or I was going to get a tap on the shoulder and it's yeah. like, you know, it's time for you to go. And there were a few little warning signs that I saw and I thought, this is, this is going to, this is going to end. Um, and I'd rather have been um, ready to go and do something else afterwards. So um, I still was hundred percent wanting to race. I'd always wanted to go racing as the Stig. I thought that was the ultimate um, thing. If I, that was always my dream was to fuse the TV piece of Stig with real racing and um, we very nearly got that going i mean brick car we did do brick car uh, we raced a, a diesel bmw in, in the fog for 24 hours i drove about 19 hours of the 24 um and um but it never really happened but you know always you, you have admissions for things at the end of the day it wasn't my show and i i love what i did do and it was time to go so I yeah i had my book i handed my notice in and sorry guy 
Dig at Le Mans in an Aston Martin. That would have been fun, wouldn't it? That would have been fun. <laughs> well, that's what they were. That's what they were planning, actually. So we got yeah. we got that, that close to that coming off. Really, um, and it didn't didn't quite happen. And yeah, but it, I, I thought it, it was time to to do something different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I handed my notice in. I was not fired. I always like to clarify that one. And um, yeah. I had a chat with my boss, and you know, try, did it as reasonably as we could. And um, for whatever reason, they they went the legal route and. Um, had to get past those hurdles to to get through in the end, but, but that's kind of been part of the story, hasn't it? The whole the legal fight then became public just as the the who's the stig unmasking moment, and you know I was aware of that as a you know general consumer of Top Gear and a motorsport fan, so it it was still quite big, wasn't it? Even when you were going through that, yeah, oh yeah. Well, my favourite stat is <clears throat> it was in the top ten searches on Google, um, who is the stig, and it was um, it was ahead of what is the meaning of life, but it was just behind. <laughs> Am I pregnant? Which I think is brilliant. Priorities and all that. Um, yep. But it, it was amazing that it got to that point. But I think eventually the bubble had to burst and um, yep. it was, it was going to happen one way or the other. So um, better to be on the front foot. And, and luckily for me, <clears throat> I always thought as well, someone else can come and do this. And I, I just thought, we've had eight years of the Stig in the white suit. Let's bring in the next one. And then if they filmed that really funny one with the stig farm and um, all the multicolored sticks <laughs> walking around, and I found that quite amusing. So um, I suppose there's so no animosity because that answers quite a few questions we've had. Was was it pantomime or was was all of that that kind of play with the other presenters real when they seem to be pissed off afterwards? No animosity at all. Oh, I think there was. Animate. I think there was some. I don't think well, Jeremy. I think was pretty pissed off. Um, and you know, I can see his point of view as well. Um, but of course. At the end of the day, as fun as it is, we've got careers, haven't we? And um, you've also got to, you've got to, got to try and yeah. Yeah. go from one lily pad to the next. Um, that one for me was closing, like I say. So um, I, I, you know, I made up with everybody afterwards. I made sure that um, I always was respectful to everybody I've worked with. And I have huge respect for Jeremy, um, Richard, James, Andy, all, all the young lads that I work with and girls too. They were brilliant, the production team. So I had nothing bad to say about them, really. And so the, the sort of the bit of um, heat initially afterwards went away quite quickly. Mm. And within a year, um, I think I was back on the show doing that. We did a fantastic thing for Help, Help the Heroes yeah. and the, the, the warriors that came in and drove the bowler. So I got to come back and do some training with them. Saw the saw the team out again on the on the Bond movie and, um, you know, and actually did a really fun video for them after, after they left. Um, and went to the Grand Tour. We did quite a fun thing at Thruxton, where I got reeled out, um, dressed as a sort of tramp stig that had been sleeping rough for the past sort of four years. Um, that was with Hammond, wasn't it? Hammond was yeah, in that. It was, um, it was really good fun, and everyone presented, they pretended they couldn't work or couldn't present. So, um, you know, it, it, it was, um, I suppose, trying for a time, but things move on. That's the one I'm thinking about, actually, where Hammond said to you, oh, you should write a book about that. And yeah. Then, yeah. And um, the race to recovery thing, actually, I didn't realize you were involved in that because I met you during the build up to that because I was presenting the, the off-road cross-country championship, which race to recovery, one of the rounds it. formed a part of that. And they filmed with Hammond and you at, um, was it Crick Howell or somewhere in the middle of Wales, somewhere desolate. My, my wife still reminds me that she got to ride in the car. Yeah. They needed somebody to jump in the car for one of the scenes. So I think you and Hammond were both around at that point. We both got picked completely. So there's my fanboy moment out of the way. It usually Thank is you. one during one of these episodes. So well, the Top Gear thing's over, and you talk about moving on from, you know, Stig hands over to the next Stig, and that's funny because um, James Bond tends to do that as well. Yeah, 
which is awesome. So, I mean, whilst I was, so uh, 2008, a bit early maybe, but um, having got into filming effectively through TV, you watch these amazing car chases and just thought that would be amazing to do something like that. So I got in touch with Gary Powell, who was at the time filming Casino Royale. They were just gearing up for that. Um, he very kindly put me in touch with another coordinator because he, he got his crew ready. So I went and worked on um, National Treasure 2. Um, I'd just broken my ribs racing at Bucharest in um, Romania. So I was out for the season basically. And um, but I could still drive. It was a weird, weird, I could, I couldn't, the, the racing G-force just completely opened up my back and I, I could do nothing for a couple of months. So I went and worked on this Bruckheimer movie in London. It was the biggest car chase in London's history. We were smashing these um, Mercedes through, um, you know, all the central, central St. James's and all that. Uh, so that was pretty awesome. And then from then I managed to get, uh, I stayed in touch with Gary and worked on Quantum of Solace. That was the first Bond, which was just amazing. So that was another level. And they had about some, I can't seven or eight Aston DBS cars um, being chased by these alphas. Well, one, obviously one car, but they double up. You've got yeah. sort of these different spares for different jobs. Uh, and that, they come really smashed up. So you, they wheel in the one that's had its door taken off. And it's pretty tragic. So you start with these immaculate cars, brand new. And after a, a few weeks of filming, we were filming that for three months, that section. Yes, after, because they, they call it continuity. Yeah. And guy turns up with a Stanley knife, sledgehammer and some rocks <laughs> and, and some chalk. And they just obliterate the side of the car, rip the door off, cut the, cut the dashboard up, um, smash the windscreens and, and um, make it look like the other ones. So that, that's the beauty of Bond is there's no CGI. So it, it's all physical. Everything you see, the, the guys doing those amazing jumps. So that in that one, they had um, all the stunts and stuff on the, on the rooftops and you know, it's yeah. all the wire work. And you see, you see Daniel get really stuck into all that. Um, with those boys, it's pretty remarkable. But um, that's the beauty of Bond, is it's it's real. So you and the cars are there to see, actually, if you go to the Bond collection, aren't they? It was at the British Grand Prix last year, and I did I did have a look around with my, my son, and yeah, the cars yeah. are there with the doors off. The yeah. Film. Bond in motion is, if you've got that's some, cool. well, for anyone to go, but particularly for families, it's amazing. So you've got the whole history of all the Bond vehicles there, lots of the weaponry and the gadgets and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a sna snapshot because it was at the Grand Prix, but it was, okay. it was phenomenal. And Quantum of Solace, the car with the door off is quite, you know, that's one that sticks out when you're a kid, isn't it? It so is. My youngster was quite impressed that that was there. Yeah, it's super cool. So London Film Museum at um, Covent Garden has got um, it's sort of big underground area where you can go and sort of see all that. And it's cool because they've got all the footage that relates to that car. But my favourite still is, I think, it, I'll, I'll get this wrong so I'll be shot, shot for this, but I think it's the Renault 11, is it the 14? The one from View to a Kill, where it gets cut. Yes, and it's the same car that Abby Eaton guy, we put in the virtual studio for Abby Eaton because she drove it in um, the Grand Tour. Okay. Same type of car. I think it was the 11, I think you're right. But, you well, know. if it wasn't for Top Gear, I would never have driven half a car um, and be able to sort of, t it, you know, it is one of the most fun things you can so do. So you drove the car that was in half that, that goes down the hill? Not the Bond you made a model of. But we drove them for, for, for um, one of the live shows. And actually, once you've realized basically that they've got no brakes, obviously, and um, if you turn the wheel, the thing just spins. So the only way to drive it is with, with your foot buried to the floor on the accelerator at all times. And it's like driving a hovercraft. So you just keep pointing it where you want to go with your foot to the floor and it just drags you around. Um, sort of <laughs> perpetual motion. How did you find the driving, like, like the stunt driving? Because obviously, you know, it's completely different to race car driving. So how do you find, did you have to adapt or did you find it quite easy to do? Because it's a very different kind of style, isn't it? Yeah. You've got a great, I, mean, I know you've got great car control and stuff, but it must have been, 
<laughs> was it something you asked <laughs> or was it just, you, just, you just kind of learnt it yourself as you go along? Um, so, well, luckily, when I, when I first started racing, I did a skid control course um, of the car variety, obviously. Yeah. And um, that was quite useful because of the way I went at it, like a bull in a china shop, and I was, I was spinning all the time. So I was able to catch these spins and try and stay out of the wall more often than not. Um, so that was always interesting. But it is, if, you're, if you're good at sliding, it means you're usually slow on the stopwatch. So they're, they're two totally removed things. And you get people who, if you, if you blur the, the definition, you can never do a fast time again. So I was keen not to do that. But through Top Gear, we started doing these sli you know, sliding around, the drifting and all that. Yeah. And I, I've always found them there, chalk and cheese, is really different skills. Yeah. So through, through the Top Gear days, kind of learned a bit of that, sort of sliding it around, making things look dirty and everything. But in terms of damage, because I remember it was a really windy day at Dunsfold. We had a Ferrari there. And it was not, not the pressure, but the, I really wanted to, I always wanted to get the absolute best time. And, I, and we felt that the, the car, because the conditions wasn't getting as good a time as we wanted. Anyway, I shaved the tire wall. And I, was, I, I, had, my head, I had my head in my hands, you know, because it's a brand new, it was a, I think it was a Ferrari, it was a 430, absolutely immaculate. And the Ferrari guys are just amazing. And they're like, you know, Steve, don't worry. We have many cars. Like Fiorano, we crash many cars. There's no problem. So they were brilliant about it, but not everybody was. And, you know, I remember turfing the Koenigsegg off and thought, that's P45. Um, don't collect, go, don't get, a two, get the 200. Um, but again, there were extenuating circumstances with that. And everybody was really cool about it. But that's two mistakes, if you like, in eight years. And... Same with racing, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you shunt cars, you don't get, they don't call you back. With the stunt side, um, it's, it's very focused, but of course, but, but thumping the cars around at times is, is called for. But, um, but usually it's, not usually, it's always um, signposted, you're gonna do this, you're gonna hit that mark, blah, 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 blah. We do tons of rehearsals. So the, I suppose the difference is, you know, racing will do testing, but we'll mark out an area on an airfield um, using tape and cones and everything to recreate the streets. Yeah. yeah. So the real the mess that you see on screen is very deliberate. Obviously, when things start knocking into each other, you know, but things 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 mix up a little bit. Um, but people are so on their game that they that anticipation is there so that you know you can you can figure out where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. So it's yeah. quite. And are you hopping in and out of the car with the stars? So Daniel Craig, for example, was as soon as you'd finished with your bit, was he hopping in after you? So there you go, Daniel, your turn. So he does a lot of the driving, and um, so we did a lot of training with him, and uh, so that's that's really cool. That's a, I mean, it's a blinding part of, of the job. What's he like? Uh, he he loves it. He's great fun, and and loves the motors. So I think um, you know, you, you could, that really comes across that passion. Yeah, and I, I think um, you're definitely going to see. You know, you see it on screen because the, 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 he gets very heavily involved with the stunt team. So the fight stuff, um, the wire work, leaping around. It's it's very physical. So they've got to be, you know, he's got to be in peak condition. And that's- uh, Do they dress you up to look like him? Do you get like a mask that vaguely from a distance looks like Daniel Craig or do they not worry about that kind of stuff? Because in my head, that's how a stunt double works with the cars, you know? I've done masks before, but for, um, for like, I worked on Han Solo and we had a full on latex mask. Um, so I was, I was doubling the actor there. And those are really hard because you can't, the, the, the mask sits in front of your eyes and you lose your peripheral vision, basically. It's really, yeah. it's really strange sensation. Um, and you sweat like bilio and you have to stick something up inside the mask so you can actually breathe because it just sticks to your face. We're all wearing masks now for, for COVID and everything. Um, but the latex is like, 
absolutely glues to your face yeah. to find out where you know to get kind of work around that yeah um, one of the things they can do these days though is they put dots on your face and the camera can identify that to do face replacement so that's the it's, it's a clever way whereas in the 80s you'd watch a movie and you'd see a blonde girl driving a ferrari and then you'd see yeah. a bloke in a wig two seconds later who looked nothing like her was like weighed 300 pounds and um you know that was the 80s you could do what you liked that was guy in a ginger wig wasn't it it was guy it was guy yeah what's um wasn't it cage like when you did um national treasure did you meet him yeah he was pretty cool he was very quiet massive petrol head isn't he sorry massive petrol head by all accounts Is he? a lamborghini mura and all sorts we didn't chat much bless him i mean i was on the roof of the car in a pod and he was underneath and so I, I think he was, I think this was a bit nerve wracking for him. So he was downstairs and, and he had a steering wheel, but it wasn't connected. He had no pedals and no control over the speed or when the car stopped. And so the, the pod car, so the stunt driver's on the roof and yeah. then you insert the actor into the action, you mount cameras all over the place. So, I, you know, he was probably running through his lines and thinking, well, I did, I did used to think I was wearing, a, I was in the same car as him, but I wore a helmet. I, I think the penny dropped with him was like, we're sharing the same car. He gets a helmet and I don't. I think he found that <laughs> a little bit disconcerting. I saw, he, yeah. I, saw the, I saw the clip he put for the filming of uh, Le Mans 66 when they were going around on the, on the bank in it. I think, were you driving the car where it was kind of, it was like a car stuck to the side of it, like a, um, oh, almost like you bolted to it. Yeah, no, so I didn't drive, so that, I can't remember what they called that, but that was like, they called it a go pod or a go car, but. Um, Weird contraption. Very weird. So that one was taking it to another extreme, basically. It's a much bigger version. Yeah. And I didn't drive that one, but I was in, I was driving the, um, well, I was, uh, Christian Bale was playing Ken Miles, yeah. who um, famously nearly won Le Mans when they you know, did that, um, fudged the, the, the finish at the line with yeah. three cars yeah. crossing and, and he was a beat behind, um, was it? So, yeah. Um, so I was playing the character of Denny Hume, who was Ken Miles' teammate. So I was sharing the car with Christian. So that was quite cool. So I was in the, the golf liveried um, Ford, wow. but occasionally jumping out doing basically because still part of the stunt team. So you get in this, drive that. And it was really, really interesting because the cars looked perfect. They looked immaculate, like exactly like the originals from the outside. Yeah. And on the inside, you, you really had to keep reminding yourself like this is not a real racing car. You've got to be, it's going to go really, it went, they were really fast. The V8 engines we were rattling around 170 miles an hour. But you definitely didn't want to hit, you know, hit a tree with it. It was, um, it, it's a, it's a fast prop, and yeah. that's what it's built, built to do. Yeah. What's Christian like then? He's again another petrol head who, when you read about him, he's got a big collection of cars. Is he cool? Yeah, he was brilliant. Um, he, you know, super focused, super serious. I'd, I'd yeah. sort of observed him before I worked on Batman: The Dark Knight Rises. So oh, I was driving, yes. dream job, driving the Batmobile. Yeah. And um, oh, did you drive? Were you working with him on Batman as well then? I say working with him. I mean, I was shooting at him from a tank um, briefly. So you actually drove the Batmobile. I did, I did the prep for this. I did my homework, but I didn't realise you drove the Batmobile. I drove one of them. So in that, so George Cottle was the original stunt driver in uh, Dark. Uh, sorry, in um, ba Batman Begins. Yeah. So that was the black Batmobile. The Tumbler. And then yeah, and so the Tumbler. And then it went into Dark Knight. And then Dark Knight Rises. Bane, the bad guy, had stolen Batman's kit. Um, and he had three of them. So I had the one with the rocket launchers, which is awesome. So I was shooting at Batman in his, his in the bat wing. Um, yeah. Very naughty. They were a lot of fun. Diesel, aren't they? Are they diesel, the tumblers? No, it's got a Chevy 5. Point, I think 5.4 V8. 
loads of power. And when you didn't have the guns on it, you could drift them really well. But um, when you put the gun on it, it made the, it made the tires grip. You put the four, it put enough, and you couldn't slide it, which is quite a shame. But they were a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And so well, they were very well engineered. A guy called Andy Smith um, had, um, had built them from scratch from a, from a drawing on a piece of paper by Chris Nolan, the director. Yeah. And all those inverted wheels and all that stuff. But he built it to do stunts. So the one that's worth watching, um, which George did, I think on, I'll get this wrong, probably Dark Knight, the Tumblr does, there's actually both the first films, they, it does this huge jump, but there's one across the roofs, about 200 um, f- foot jump, all real. And um, they, they managed to um, cushion the suspension slightly and do, do some really clever stuff. So they didn't keep, so otherwise it would have bounced forever. They had to have it come down and carry, carry on flat. And he built these little hydraulic um, absorption rams into the um, floor of the car. That's special effects. That's the, they, they build these amazing um, things. So some films you get an Aston Martin, it comes oven ready to drive like that. And, um, and other things completely, they're complete concepts like the Tumblr and um, they make them work. And how, any, any big shunts, Ben, or is it, is it pretty safe or is it, is it quite risky? So, I mean, the, you look at something, you go, blimey, that's pretty full on. And then you, you spend the rest of the time rehearsing to de-risk whatever that is. Yeah. Um, so you might look at it on paper, and think, you know, there's, there's people here, so how could we possibly do that? But then when you watch how the stunt people move and they rehearse how they're going to move. And um, so you, you might drive through, I'm making this up, but drive through a packed um, piazza or something. Um, but you build the speeds up and everybody finds their marks. You don't get people accidentally running into each other because they find their lanes and it's all very focused. So the whole point of these rehearsals is, is pretty amazing. So you, you build things up block by block by block. So at the end, if you hadn't seen the beginning part, you just watch the end, you'd think, blimey, this looks really crazy. And that's what you see on screen. But when you, when you see the, sort of the brick by brick process yeah. and how it breaks down and, and there's a method to it, then um, that's, the, that's the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. When you're a racing driver and, and equally when you were the Stig, if you've got enough money, if you've got enough talent, you can drive pretty much any race kind of world. When you're the Stig, you drive supercars. We've got enough money, you can buy a Koenigsegg if you want. But nobody can go out and buy Tumblr or a James Bond Aston Martin with all the, all the toys on. And, and that's well, yeah, where- You I'm, can, you uh, can buy a Bond Aston Martin. Oh, can you? So, um, well, I mean, I've just done this big research thing. So I've just, just yep. written a book about Aston Martin, and, yep. um, which has been amazing. So I've gone right through the whole history of, of the company and, and more about the, the personalities behind it. And it's quite cool because they've kind of gone full circle now and they're just re-releasing um, a Goldfinger spec DV5, so that you can you can basically get a full on full Bond spec, brand new car that was from the 1960s, with the, the machine guns coming out, the headlights, smoke screen, oil. It's all the stuff that guy needs. And we know it's like yeah, it it be on bricks. It'd be on bricks in about a week. Would it? Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> you live in a posh part of whole guy. Not the case. There you go. Um, no ejector seats, sadly, but pretty much everything else. So yeah, it's got the button. Has it got the button though? I, I don't. I don't think it does. I don't know actually. I don't want to. I just shouldn't answer that because I'm not sure. But it's got almost everything else. So it's got, but all the original spec and everything. But it's funny because they had to sort of re-engineer it because I don't think they had all well, the plans for the original DB5. They're sort of long lost in a way, and they've had to sort of scan it, and then they realised that um, in fact the two sides of the car are uneven. Because, uh, so you would get, one man would build, I think get this right, but I think one man built each side or one man built both sides, but they were, they were hand built. 
Yeah. And the engine went in in such a way that they had to slightly cheat one side yeah. of the bodywork, ever so slightly. Yeah. So if you if you were doing a, a, a like if you scanned it and and sort of doubled it over, it wouldn't fit together. Um, so they had to kind of re-engineer it slightly with, with using um, uh, you know the CAD system to yeah. smoothen out a few of the old um, uh, little bits of yeah, unique uniqueness about the chassis. But built. you take my point though. When you were racing, you know anyone. There's a lot of people who may be able to drive those cars, but you've driven cars that nobody will ever drive. That are kind of mythical and kind of exist only in sort of Hollywood land and in sort of legends as it were that's quite cool it is cool. Like that. yeah it's amazing i grew up watching the bond films and and move and do movies generally and they're timeless aren't they because once yeah. that once that's edited on on the screen that's it done um racing and the tumbler is just something no one's even ever seen as a mock-up you know it's not the sort of car that somebody arrives at a car show in as a mock-up you know yeah but, but i like with the race sunday you've, you've had a good result bad result but ideally a good one you know you'll never go back there again but it's kind of it's there and it's done and it's over quite quickly. The cool thing with films is you do, you get to see the really cool footage for a while afterwards. Um, and it's, it's encapsulated there and they shoot them to be timeless. I think that's, what's great, particularly that level, the, the camera yep. team, it's, it's different to Top Gear. Top Gear made, made beautiful film, make beautiful films still. Um, but you, you see the level go up and there's a reason the crews are much bigger. I mean, the, the camera and the kit and the quality that they're throwing onto the screen is timeless and it's they're, they're going for that one magic shot so yes it's amazing privilege to have a to be to be at the center of that and um yeah pretty cool. that's not the only screen stuff you were doing either because you were fifth gear for a season you did were you presenting the, the sky sports coverage for nascar as well sure did uh, i did a bit of that a bit of indycar yeah and that's quite fun um, bit of fifth gear and um, what else been on to? Well, there's a couple of uh, sort of lesser known motoring shows. I've kind of driven um, another one, I can't remember what it's called now, Power something. Yeah, did a bit of that. Um, yeah, it's good fun. I mean, I enjoy the presenting stuff, quite fun. I mean, you've done, you've done racing, stunt driving, presenting, book writing. I mean, it's pretty, you've pretty much done a fair, a fair how's, the, how's the sort of, we were talking about it before we, we started the podcast, but writing a book, I mean, how does that come about? I mean, where do you start? You no, know, it's just tough. I'm being a racing driver. Everyone expects me just to pump out, you know, a short version of the Mr. Men. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the sort of thing that I would do. Yeah, but, I, that's where I started. Yeah, I mean, like with the Aston book, I mean, how does that come about? Yeah, I was, well, I was very lucky. So I, I wrote a book when I left Top Gear and um, The Man in the White Suit, then got uh, an opportunity. I, the, the book I'd always wanted to write when I was um, the Stig was how to drive, a driving guide of some sort. I was going to call it the Stig's driving guide. Um, and that basically found life as how to drive, which I used, you know, narrative stories to, to tell, you know, communicate the skills that we, a lot of the stuff we take for granted from track, um, basic stuff, looking further ahead, anticipation and, and all those kind of things, but making it fun. So telling it in, in a context of stories. Um, and the editor from that, John Butler, he got in touch at the end of last year and said, how about, would you be up for writing a book about Aston Martin? And he said, you've got experience of these things from, from movies. So I said, absolutely, would love to. And then um, thinking, yeah. And then actually thought about it and thought, blimey, I, I don't know. I mean, I then, I was, to my horror, realized the company's over a hundred years old and how much I didn't know about them. The real joy was, was actually digging into it and just these amazing stories I had no idea about. You know, as a kid, I watched Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang not realizing that the guy who um, invented it, a guy called Count Louis Zabrowski, he was one of the early racing drivers for Aston. 
and um, took him into Grand Prix racing. Um, he helped get, get it funded. Without him, probably there wouldn't be a company. And this is amazing. This guy's a huge personality. So um, he's born from a wealthy family, but decided in, after World War I, there was a knockdown sale on um, Zeppelin engines. And uh, so he bought one of those and stuck it into a truck chassis. And that's Chitty Bang Bang. So he was setting these crazy records at um, Brooklands. And then there's a little boy who was watching and um, observe, you know, seeing this amazing car. And, and the bumps of Brooklyn's were such that when you hit them at high speed, the car would take off and the car flew through the air, passed him to about 100 miles an hour. And that little boy was Ian Fleming. And Ian Fleming, many years later, the boy became a man. And after he'd done the Bond books, he wrote the story of Chitty Bang Bang, the story of the, Chitty, of the, the flying car that he saw as a, as a kid, I think he was nine years old or so at Brooklyn's and that was that that amazing link so and Bond ended up driving an Aston so there's these amazing wheels within wheels in in the stories that I really loved um all through to really diving into the detail on on Sir Sterling Moss um you know the a household name that we all know as the Grand Prix driver and I never had really paid enough attention I suppose to his other careers because he drove pretty much anything with wheels but he was pivotal for Aston because they won Le Mans in 1959. But it was this sort of amazing double bluff that he, he put out there. He basically threw um, himself out as the, as the hare to break the Ferraris. And they absolutely bit on the bait, chased him. Um, his car didn't make it, but all the Ferraris blew themselves to bits. Um, and Aston were able to claim their first outright victory. Really cool stuff. And the, but it's the how they did it. And actually learning in the research, learning about it's going to sound silly, but how fast Sterling was. And um, so I dove into the, I went to the Aston Martin, Aston Martin Heritage Trust, got into the old race reports and literally forensic oh, wow. detail of um, the driving style, tire temperatures across the different cars, but the lap times. And um, so what, you, what I really got was the, the driving style across all the different drivers in the team and breaking down how Sterling did it and what made him, what set him apart from the others. And it, it was really a fun journey. And that's all in the book. You can get a flavor of that, can you, by reading the book? Yeah, that's all in there. So, and it's really fun because it jumps from World War One to World War Two. There's um, Bentley, you know, W.O. Bentley, who founded yeah. Bentley Cars. He was obviously at Bentley at the beginning and he, he sort of started um, the British obsession with winning Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Aston Martin then picked up, but um, he subsequently left. And when he was at Lagonda, he built um, a six-cylinder engine that eventually would power the first, um, the DB cars, because David Brown bought Aston Martin and he bought Lagonda. So he bought Bentley's engine. So um, post-war, first line of cars from the DB, um, I'll get this right, DB2 or DB1 onwards, but anyway, they were powered by Bentley's engine. So um, there's a, it's an amazing set of um, I suppose coincidences and um, happy circumstance. Now we did show a picture of you lent on the the DB5, um, but we will obviously when this goes out. If you look on our Instagram page on at, uh, Spin Wheels Podcast, we will actually um, we've got a picture of the book. Awesome, um, so, we'll, so we'll put that out there as well. But yeah, it's, um, been, it's been really fun. So I've done and I've done just done the audio book. So um, done three days of um, of that. So some some poor chaps got to edit that together now, <laughs> but really fun story. So of all the stuff I've done it's been fascinating diving into the, into the racing stories and um, especially the, yeah, some of the, the old and bold, but going right up to modern day, because now look at them go. Yeah. Adrian Newey um, with that uh, Valkyrie yeah. and they're going back in Grand Prix racing. So they've gone full circle. So the last time it was at ni- 1924 or something, they were doing uh, Formula One Grand Prix racing back in the day. Yeah. And then 
as of next year, they're back at it. Fantastic. We do have quite a few questions, most of them related to um, the, the Stig and the Top Gear thing. I think you've answered some of those um, fantastically, actually, very, very um, openly and honestly. I think the people who asked them will be quite chuffed. Um, Jonathan Tuckwell on Twitter wants to know, you've raced touring cars, endurance, V8. We didn't touch on that, actually. We need to touch on that. Um, Indy Lights, involved in stunt work. Um, what has been the most satisfying point of your career? What Beating point? Say again. <laughs> Beating Guy Smith. At the um, Spice Girls game or? Guy be like, yeah, well, when did that happen? Um, no, yeah, the Spice Girls. Um, I, I, what's the most satisfying? I, I suppose one of the seminal moments of racing was, was the first Le Mans, first yep. Le Mans proper. Um, and I, and uh, to my great surprise, cutting it with, uh, you know, people I've watched on the telly like Mark Blundell, because, you know, we were a younger generation. And I remember driving past his MG in the, in the rain. I looked across, <laughs> recognised the helmet, and I thought, oh, my God, that's yeah, Mark Blundell. I'm driving past him. Um, <laughs> don't throw it off, you know, this what's going on. So um, I suppose that was great, because that was, for me, that was the, the pinnacle of my racing career, was that that was a top, top level. And you're there racing the Audis and um, all these works drivers. And um, that was... What year was that, the, the year you ever took Blundell in the MG? 2001. Okay. So that was the very wet year at Le Mans. Yep in a very, very fast, naughty car that was spinning yeah. its wheels from third gear all the way up to fifth. If, if you dared get into fifth gear on the straights when it was that wet. Um, that was really something else, yeah. I loved that. That was, um, that was pretty special. I felt like a real, real racing driver then. Yeah, I can imagine. That's a, that's a big moment to even consider. Um, and then Ickle John on Twitter wanted to know, the video game sim racing collaboration worked well. So he wants to know a bit more about that. Um, he wants to be virtually coached by the Stig. Not sure yeah, you have to. It's probably doable. <laughs> well, the poor man, if he goes to. So I worked on Project Cars 1 and 2, yeah. which was amazing. And um, you can probably tell I'm, I, I'm obsessed with um, racing in the rain. I love it. I find it fascinating. And for Project Cars 2, um, it was, it's very difficult to simulate racing in the rain for, on the computers. Like they, they normally just flood the entire track. So you just get different levels. So you get a bit wet, very wet, monsoon. Yeah. And what we managed, I say we, we managed to get um, the software guys. It would it, the puddles could form organically in one corner. So that that part of track, if it was raining heavily, that corner would get very wet. Other parts would say the same. But we engineered in the aquaplane and and got that to All be right. true, to be realistic, which was very very difficult physics for them to master. So that's quite for me. That's that is one of the best features on Project Cars too. So if you want to become a rainmeister, it's there. And there's this really annoying voice um, in the background. So if you, if you break something, it says, that looks bad, you need to come to the pits. And that's, that's my voice, um, doing the voice, of, the voice of reason. If only I'd had that voice in Formula First. Yeah, exactly. It would have worked out much differently. Yeah, it's not but, a good um, idea to go on the outside at Hawthorne. Don't do it, yeah. Don't do it, Ben. So what does the future hold, then? Well, more sim stuff, I hope. I think that's, that's an amazing part of the future. And yep. um, it's making motorsports, um, you know, achievable for a lot of, lot of people because there's money going into online gaming and yeah. it's, as a grassroots thing you can learn a lot of discipline the, a lot of engineering the professionalism in that sport is incredible and um it's getting every single every single week it gets closer to the real thing yeah so the, the the skills that you can learn in it are deployable i think it's much more than they used to be so um hopefully i'll be doing some more of that um Hopefully, some more filming when we're allowed to go back out and start waving cameras around and skidding cars about. So, have you had anything to do with the latest Bond movie? Yep. So I worked no on that. Time to die. 
so that yeah we're out in Matera for that and then a bit in Norway I think it was um, so that was awesome so is there a BMW M3 underneath the DB5 that they were filming in that cannot answer that question it, it was on Twitter they did put a, a behind the scenes thing and they showed this thing setting off from the standstill and it definitely didn't go like a DB5 did it well I, t I can tell you there's some awesome cars in it and you yeah. won't be disappointed. So there's some, there's some cracking footage on the internet and you, you'll get a flavor yeah. of, um, of what's to come, but um, I think it will be a, a hit for sure. Um, it's been, I know it's been delayed, but I, I mean, all the better for yeah, November, I think it's due to come out, isn't it? Yeah, it's gonna be, a, it's gonna be an absolute stomper. It's gonna be brilliant. Brilliant, cannot well, wait. Just some quick fire questions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a few, few questions here for you, Ben. Um, first thing that comes into your mind. Um, so top gear or fifth gear? Top Gear. Le Mans or NASCAR? Le Mans. Beach holiday or adventure holiday? Adventure. Dogs or cats? It's an invitation. I hope it is. <laughs> Wait, what, what's that goal for what? Uh, dogs or cats? Dog. Oversteer or understeer? Oversteer. <laughs> stunt driving or race driving? Oh, stunt driving. V6 or V8? V8. Okay, so we've got a pass along question from our. Hang on, can we just hang on the dogs thing there, guy? The dog theme continues. It does continue, yes. I think that's that's now what fourteen out of fifteen. Yeah, if you're a crazy cat lady, you're not going to make it in motor racing. That that no. is a... that right? No, dog, yeah. the dog people only. Every single guest has said dogs, apart from Brian Gush, who said cats. But of course, he's a more of a kind of behind the scenes type guy, or a thinking person. <laughs> yeah, more of a thinking, sort of thoughtful, clever guy. Is that what they are to you, Guy? They're just behind the scenes people. Is that what you call your mechanics? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. That's what I heard. Yeah. But they're the ones that make it all happen. They're the ones that make it all happen. Don't talk to him. He's just <laughs> behind the scenes. Oh my God. Right. Well, we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, it's best. It's best we do. So, pass on question from Mike Broad, who's our last guest. He said, um, if you were a professional driver, what would you have done? Well, there's always Uber. You are there is, I guess. Well, you were in the army, weren't you in the army? Yeah, I did do that. I was. I probably would have stayed with that. So I did join the reserves, and um, probably would have. I would have stuck with it. Yeah. Okay. That's so, uh, or a sideways Uber driver. I quite like that one. We can do some. Or a sideways Uber. Uber. Yeah. <laughs> so Ben, do you have a pass-on question for our next guest? I was thinking about this, and I just couldn't think of anything particular. But I suppose it would be. Um, what Star Wars character would you be if you had to be that character for the rest of your life? <laughs> Good question. Which one would you be, Ben? I was, I was trying to think about that. I would have, I naturally would have said Han Solo, <laughs> but then that would involve, that means you're going to be stabbed to death by your own son. So I think Chewbacca has got a lot going for him. Guy, of course, would pick Princess Leia, wouldn't he? Guy would be Princess Leia. Jabba the Hutt, I think. Bob, yeah, Jabba the Hutt also it ends badly for him. <laughs> it does. It didn't end too great for Princess Leia either, actually. Yeah, I think a hairy Wookiee with a crossbow. I think these days, I think you could go far. Oh, man, we, we've got some creativity for Instagram bubbling away there. Exactly. A hairy Wookiee with a, with a crossbow. Yeah. Well, that's great, Ben. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, uh, it's been great to well, it's been great to catch up with you because I haven't seen you for or spoke to you for, for, for absolutely years. So... It's always good to catch up and uh, um, you know, wish you all the best for, uh, for, for, the, for the future and uh, look forward to seeing you in some more, doing some more stunt driving. Will we see you on a racetrack, do you think, soon? Or I would love to. Yeah, I've, I've missed you, mate. It's been um, too long and 
yeah, I, I would I would love to get back out there. I think was it last time I was out? It was 2014 in anger in a in a Ferrari. Come and play uh, Lotus Cortinas with Guy and Pete at the Wolves yeah. Trophy at Capital yeah. Park in September. Yeah, I mean at this stage I'll drive anything, even a Cortina. <laughs> um, so um, no, I hope so. There's a there's a, I'm always working on it, but um, still I'm, I'm glad at least to be doing the not at least I'm loving what I'm doing with the films and um, plenty of good projects and and um, some writing stuff to do as well. So yeah, well, fingers crossed. Best. Best of luck with the book as well. I know that's, uh, that's going to be coming out soon. And uh, yeah, fantastic. good luck at Le Mans, dude. I'll be watching. Thank you. Thank you. I know you'll be virtually. So, yeah. so we told you that we had, you know, you hadn't seen it all yet if you've been listening and watching uh, Spinning Wheels. And, and I think we delivered on that promise. He's been James Bond. He's been Money Penny. He's, he's been the Stig, of course. Um, but more than that, he's, he's a racing driver at heart. And hopefully we'll see him back out racing the car very soon. But I think there's a short, um, a small, item of looking forward to a James Bond movie at the end of the year is um, work in action um, before that so we'll do a plug for the book but thank you very much uh, to Ben Collins the Stig for joining us on Spinning Wheels mm-hmm.